We're thrilled and looking forward to having Skip Heisick with us uh, to be sharing here on Sunday nights as we continue our journey through the Bible. Please welcome Skip this evening. Well, good evening, Calvary Chapel. I feel like standing here and clicking my heels together like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz and saying there's no place like home because I sat here Sunday mornings and Sunday nights for years getting taught through the scriptures uh, many, many years ago. And uh, I see Sunday nights as the real legacy of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, teaching generations uh, the Word of God, verse by verse and line upon line. What's also special about this particular place for me is right here on this platform, when it was being built, before it was even finished and the tent was still underway uh, right over on the field, it was my opportunity to lead my first person ever to Christ on the cement steps of this platform. So uh, it brings back uh, special memories for that. Also, the first date I ever took my uh, present wife, only wife, uh, <laughs> on was here at Calvary Chapel for a concert. And so that's special for me because not only is she with me tonight, but it's our anniversary after 23 years of being married. Let's open our Bibles then to Isaiah chapter 17. God is at work, and God is at work in every nation. God has a plan, I believe, for every nation on planet Earth. For the Scripture says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet, there comes a time when God will judge and must judge the nation that doesn't fulfill His plan and His purpose upon the Earth. There was a British historian by the name of Edward Gibbon who said, History is little more than the register of crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. Isaiah would disagree. Isaiah would tell us that history is his story, that God is very much in control of the nations of the earth and the outcome of those nations. Chapter 13 through 23, as we have been studying in them the last few weeks, is a list of burdens or heavy messages, indictments that the prophet Isaiah brings against nine nations, all that have something to do with somehow touch the nation of Israel. Some were close enough to even be bordering countries. Some of them suffered or caused suffering to the nation of Israel. The leaders of many of these nations who persecuted the nation of Israel must learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned when he was humbled by God. Daniel chapter 4 tells us, The Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. It is thought that the messages contained in this section of Isaiah, chapters 13 through 23, were messages that after they were written were read by the people in Judah to encourage them 
that their God was still in control, that God had a plan, especially for the nation of Judah, his people at that time and into the future. Now, chapter 17, and we're going to cover 17 through 19 tonight, is the burden against Damascus. Now, Damascus is a city about 135 miles north of Jerusalem, but it's also the capital of the nation of Syria. It was at that time. It is still today. But the term Damascus, the city, will denote the entire country. God is addressing the nation of Syria that bordered to the north, Israel. It was on the main route, the trade route, between Egypt and Mesopotamia. So it was quite influential, very important, very strategic. And what brings it into God's purview in this prophecy is the fact that they joined the ten northern tribes of Israel. Just south of Syria, you know that the country was divided. Judah in the south, two tribes in the south, ten tribes in the north. Those ten tribes formed an alliance together to fight against that great superpower, the Assyrian Empire. So verse 1, the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap The cities of Aroer are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Damascus, that city that is on a fertile plain just to the east of Mount Hermon, which is that visible 10,000-plus foot peak that you see all over the northern part of Israel and on into Syria. The history of Damascus goes back quite far, back into the book of Genesis, in fact, back into chapter 14. Some say it's the oldest city in the world, although they say that about a lot of cities, I found out. Jericho is purported to be the oldest city in the world, as are a few cities over in Greece. Syria and Ephraim, by the way, just as Syria denotes the entire or Damascus, the entire nation of Syria, so too the term Ephraim, which we're about to read, denotes the entire northern kingdom of ten tribes, all under the name of Ephraim. These two nations, the ten northern tribes, or Ephraim, and Syria formed an alliance, as I mentioned, against Assyria. They were afraid that alone they couldn't conquer or couldn't withstand the invading forces, so they thought an alliance was the best thing they could do. However, not only did they form an alliance against the Assyrian Empire, but they formed an alliance together against Judah. And that's where the problem comes in. God takes it very seriously. Because to partner with a heathen nation against God's people would be to place oneself, one's nation, under serious judgment by God, which is exactly what happens. What this does is brings the nation of Israel, Ephraim, those ten northern tribes, under the same judgment that God would bring Syria into, or Damascus. Verse 3, the fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria... 
They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Syria fell to Assyria in 732 B.C. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel also fell. It was the same tool of judgment that God used against one nation, He used against the other nation. Now, when Assyria came through this portion of the Middle East, they destroyed city after city after city. And they had sort of a custom. They would take and destroy the city, destroy the buildings, and deport the people from out of the land and leave the land desolate. They did that to so many of the cities in Israel and Aram, or that northern kingdom of Syria, and made their way toward Judah. Notice it says in verse 3 that they will be as the glory of the children of Israel. That is, they will be as inglorious as the children of Israel. The same fate that Israel would see based upon turning against Judah and trying to depose the king of Judah would fall also to this ally, this northern kingdom. So they will be as the glory of the children of Israel. You remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the Philistines fought against the nation of Israel and the ark of God was captured. Eli the priest was quite old at the time and his two boys, Hophni and Phinehas, were corrupt. And uh, during this battle, not only was the Ark of God captured, but Hophni and Phinehas were killed. News came back to Eli of this event. Your two boys, they were killed in the battle with the Philistines. But the Bible tells us that when this old man, Eli, heard the worst news, the Ark of God had been captured, that he fell backward on his seat hit the ground, broke his neck, and died. Now, the wife of Phineas, she was pregnant. And she heard the news. She heard that her husband was killed and that the ark of God was captured. It drove her into labor pains, and she had a child. And the news was so horrific that she called the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And that's the idea here, that glory of Israel would depart because they would come under the captivity of the Assyrian kingdom and so too the nation that would ally with her. Something to be learned in that, I believe. Whenever we side with the world against God's people, God takes it very seriously. We need to be careful the things that we would say or do or the position we would take against God's people. So often we speak about the children of the Lord in a flippant manner, and God takes it seriously. Saul of Tarsus, you know the story. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest and presumably even put to death those who were calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He was on a rampage from Jerusalem sweeping through the empire. But God got his attention. And there on his back, on the ground, looking up, the Lord spoke to him. And he said something incredibly interesting. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
Who are you, Lord? He said. Interesting that Jesus didn't say, Why are you persecuting them, my people? Jesus so identifies with his people as the head of the body of Christ that when you touch a member of his body, you touch Christ. And Saul of Tarsus had touched the body of Christ. Jesus took it personally. It's sort of like when you uh, drive a nail with a hammer and you miss the nail and you hit your thumb. I don't know if you've ever done that and hit your thumb really hard, but I'd ask you a question. Where do you hurt when you hit your thumb with a hammer? Answer, everywhere. It seems like the pain shoots through not only the hand, but into the arm, through your whole body. If one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. I wonder what God thinks when His children go at each other. I wonder what God thinks when that Christian composer I read about in Minneapolis sued four Minneapolis churches because they photocopied his song and sang it in their churches. And the lawsuit was $10,000 per church. Well, God takes it seriously. And so, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel. That is diminished. Verse 4, In that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane, and the fatness of his flesh will grow lean, depicting the wasting away of a sick and infirmed individual. It shall be... As when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the heads with his arm, it shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. In other words, the judgment would be like that valley just to the southwest of Jerusalem. They were familiar with it. When the harvesters would go through and pluck the stalks of grain, leaving it barren and empty. By the way, you notice the term in verse 4, in that day. You're going to see it quite a bit in this section. And sometimes it refers to an immediate fulfillment, and sometimes, as Pastor Chuck reminded us the last couple weeks, it reminds us of a far fulfillment, on into the tribulation period, and even into the kingdom age, the millennial reign of Christ. Verse 6, yet gleaning grapes will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives At the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. In that day, a man will look to his maker, and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. These wooden images were, they're called in the Hebrew, Asherim. And it was a depiction of a fertility goddess, a Babylonian goddess named Asherah. She was seen as the consort of Baal or Baal, that chief fertility god of Babylon. And often they were depicted together. And it seemed that the children of Israel, in their idolatry, would build an altar to that chief god, Baal, and then next to that altar, at the top of the hills of Israel, underneath the green leafy trees, they would plant a pole with a wooden carved image of Asherah because their worship was often accomplished together. 
But look at verse 7. It bears, it bears another glance. In that day a man will look to his maker, and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. In other words, when Israel would be invaded by the Assyrian army, it would so serve as a wake-up call to these ten northern tribes that had lapsed so long and so deep into idolatry. At that point, they would recognize it's futile to call upon the gods and the goddesses of the Babylonians and the surrounding nations that we have served. There's only one hope, and that's to look to our Maker, the Holy One of Israel. Interesting, isn't it, how affliction can get our attention like nothing else. God has ways of getting our attention and bringing us back to Him. There's something about suffering that causes us to look up to our Maker and say, Lord, are you telling me something I need to learn? Are you showing me something that I haven't learned up to this point? Suffering as a way of doing that. A grim outlook can produce a glorious uplook. It got their attention. They looked back to God. I'll never forget, as I'm sure you never will, the events after September 11th. A nation suddenly grew extremely religious, spiritual. You remember the scene of both houses of Congress standing on the steps of the Capitol singing together in one accord. Something probably never done before may never happen again. I was at Ground Zero for about two weeks right after the towers fell. And I had no problem when I asked people, would you pray with me? Absolutely. And when I ran out of things to pray about, they gave me a few to add to the list. They were looking back to their maker. C.S. Lewis said something interesting, probably one of his most famous sayings. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. And then he said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world to get their attention. Heard about an ant cruising down a sidewalk. Had a piece of straw on its back, a rather large one. He felt very overburdened, overworked, and he complained about it. What made matters worse is that as he's making his journey on the sidewalk, he comes to a, a crevasse, this crack in the cement. And he thinks, how am I ever going to cross that crack with this heavy burden on my back? This is too much. I'll never make it. Then as he was shifting his weight, he decided that he would come up with something a little bit ingenious. He laid the straw across the crack and walked over, picked it up again, and moved on. You see, the burden became a bridge. The very thing that weighed him down became the very thing that got him across the crack. The burden became a bridge. Boy, I wish we would see our burdens in quite the same way. Lord, what are you showing me? Maybe you're using this to get me closer to your heart, closer to you. Sort of like those disciples. They were out on the Sea of Galilee. A huge storm came up. They freaked out. 
They thought it was the end. Then Jesus appeared to them, calmed the storm, bid Peter to come walk on the waves. Isn't it interesting that Jesus showed up on the very thing they feared the most at that point? The storm. It's a storm. We're sunk. Oh, no, look again. In the storm is your Savior. Verse 9. In that day, his strong cities will be as a forsaken bough and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold, therefore you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. Israel came to a place where they started trusting in their own cities, their own fortresses, the walled cities that dotted the landscape, rather than the very one who gave them the land as an inheritance. But they had forgotten about God, and they turned to their own gods and their own goddesses. And so, because you have forgotten the God of your salvation. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God warns the children of Israel all about what could happen in their future. And he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God who is giving you this land. You shall always remember him. And it says in the same chapter, You shall remember the way the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness to test you. Memory is a precious thing when it's used for the right thing and in the right manner. To be able to look back and see all the way God has led us and how good God has been to us for so long. But one of our problems is that we forget God's goodness, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. Church at Ephesus, in such a short period of time after their inception, they forgot. Jesus wrote a letter to them and said, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works again. And that's always the way it's done. We have to first remember what it was like when we first came to Christ. Think back just for a moment of those first days, weeks, and months after you received Christ. How excited you were. You were so in love with Him. It was like this new spiritual romance. And you were thinking of ways to please the Lord. Couldn't wait to open His Bible in the morning. Couldn't wait to come to church. In fact, maybe you came to church every night of the week. My wife used to do that years ago. She came to every single service every night of the week at first. Just an excitement. Remember those days and perhaps repent and do the first works again. Israel had forgotten. We must never forget. Verse 11, in that day, you will make your plant to grow. And in the morning, you will make your seed to flourish, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins and the day of grief and desperate sorrow. In other words, you're going to work really hard 
but you're going to see very little in terms of produce. You're not going to have much to show for all of your work. Why? Because they were trying to meet their needs without God's help. So all of their labor in the fields, all of their toil, but not much to show for it, not much fruit, not much production. Now keep in mind something back in Israel's history. God had specifically told the children of Israel once they get into the land and that they were to settle the land to expel the Canaanites from out of their borders. It's a land God said I'm giving to you and your descendants forever. And so God gave them a specific command to take the people that were there, the Canaanites, and expel them, to get rid of them, and especially their foreign gods. But the children of Israel didn't do that. They obeyed, sort of. They uh, did what God said in a way, but not all the way. It wasn't a complete obedience. got them into trouble later on. This is what we read in Joshua 16. And they did not drive out the Canaanites, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites and have become forced laborers. What happened? Well, they were motivated by greed. They thought we can put these people to the slave trade and we can get more out of them by keeping them around and using them to do the stuff we don't want to. So it was an incomplete obedience. It was the prophet Samuel that told Saul after he did not completely obey. To obey is better than sacrifice. You know what happened. Saul came back from a very strategic battle that the children of Israel had with the Amalekites. The orders were clear. You are to exterminate the king. It is to be a complete obedience. You're to wipe out all of the livestock... But Saul wouldn't do it, didn't do it. Came back with sheep, the spoils of war. And he came back and he had this, this spiritual mask that he wore. And he even used the spiritual language, sort of like, Oh, praise the Lord, brother Samuel. I've done all that God told me to do. And Samuel said, Oh, really? Then why is it that I hear the bleating of sheep in my ear?" Oh, I've brought these as spoils, plunder, to sacrifice to the Lord. And that's when the prophet said, To obey is better than sacrifice. It was an incomplete obedience. It was a lame excuse. Billy Sunday once said, An excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. An incomplete obedience and a lame excuse to back it up. So, the children of Israel didn't expel the Canaanites. We see them again. An alliance is made, and hard work is done, and little to show for it. Now in verse 12, Isaiah turns his attention, I believe, toward the Assyrian army that sweeps through the land and will even come to the wall of Jerusalem a bit later on. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas, and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. The lightest and the most useless part 
of a kernel of grain is the chaff, and when threshed is taken away quickly by the wind. Then behold, at eventide trouble, and before the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rub us. Rob us, excuse me. Though it surely did rub them the wrong way. Here's the point. Assyria will show up in the morning, vex you, cause you trouble, but they'll be gone by evening. They won't vex you any longer. In Isaiah, we'll get to it, chapter 36 and 37. The Assyrians come to the gates of Jerusalem and they threaten the leadership under King Hezekiah. And they spout great blasphemies against God, saying even, God won't protect you, and by the way, your God sent me on a mission to clean you up, to take you captive and to destroy you. And so the banter went back and forth on the wall. Shennacherib, the king, had already plundered several cities around through Judah, had already wiped out Israel and came all the way now to Jerusalem. But an angel of the Lord in one night destroyed 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian army. Oh, they were trouble in the morning and everybody on the wall of Jerusalem were sure this is it. We're toast. We're not going to make it. But God, through the prophet Isaiah, assured Hezekiah and an angel of the Lord destroyed 185,000 in one night. So, God used Assyria to destroy Israel and Damascus because they came against Judah. And then later on, God will destroy Assyria itself for trying to come against Judah. The Bible says that God regards Israel as the apple of his eye. Whoever touches you, God said, touches the apple of my eye. And all one has to do is look at the history of those who have tried to come against the nation of Israel and look at their fate. And uh, any nation who does that should think twice about trying to attack God's people. Jerusalem has seen 36 wars. She still stands. They tell us she's been leveled to the ground 17 times. She's risen from the dust 18. God has made a covenant with that land. Queen Victoria once asked her Jewish prime minister, they were talking about the Bible, and she said, you show me one thing in the Bible that proves that it's true. And he said quickly, the Jew, madam. The Jew. The Jews have survived for so long all of the attacks against her by so many nations. Now chapter 18 is the fifth of these nine burdens in this section. This is the burden against Ethiopia. Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Now the Hebrew word here is the word Cush, and that would include Ethiopia and Somalia and the Sudan, a very, very warm region. I was there once with Franklin Graham in Mogadishu during the war. And uh, it was sort of a frightening, it was indeed a frightening experience. It's a very hot place. And because of that, it is thought that 
this reference to buzzing wings is that the climate attracts birds from all over who love to winter there. In fact, one missionary said that the land of Ethiopia is noted for its aviary life, its many species of birds that occupy that land. Some, though, believe that this verse doesn't refer to birds that would cast their shadows over the land as much as a fleet of ships, the armada, the navy of Ethiopia, with its sails going to and fro to form any alliance they can with nations around them to protect them from the Assyrian onslaught. That could be the idea of the buzzing wings shadowing as they would go from place to place. Which sends, verse 2, ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the waters, saying, Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. That is, referring to the tributaries of the Nile River. So the picture here is picture of envoys, ambassadors in light craft, light vessels made out of papyrus reeds, great for navigating canals and tributaries of the Nile, horrible for being out on the ocean. And the thought is that they would go to the African nations surrounding her to build up an alliance. Isaiah, in this verse, tells these ambassadors to return back home to their own home, to Ethiopia. Why? Because in God's time, at God's pleasure, God himself will deal with the threat and make it not an issue, apart from any army. All the inhabitants of the world and the dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it, and when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest. I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Interesting, the contrast between the frantic darting around from place to place to form alliances, the buzzing of the Ethiopians in their light craft, to God in heaven, completely confident, completely at rest, and completely in control. What a contrast between the activity on earth that is so harried to the restful activity in heaven. God is never wringing his hands. He's never up in heaven saying, I don't know what I'm going to do now. It's gotten so bad down there. These people are crazy. It's out of control. What's plan B? God never has plan B. He's always in control. He sits and he rests. He has quite a vantage point being in heaven, seeing all the activities on the earth and the motives in the heart of every man and every woman. I have an assistant pastor back in Albuquerque who has a plaque on his desk that says, God never panics. I love going in his office, especially during times when I would feel panicked, and I'd look at that and go, oh, yeah, that's right. God never panics. No worries. God's in charge. I have nothing to fear. There's a beautiful picture in Psalm 2 that speaks to this. The psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? 
The kings set themselves and the rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. Saying, let us break their bonds asunder. Let us cast their cords from us. And then the psalmist says, he who sits in heaven shall laugh. Here are people on the earth desperately trying to get out of God's control and push their own agenda. And it doesn't bother God one bit. I tell you, we need to remember that because so often we forget who's on the throne. You know what was already read a few weeks back in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord seated on his throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Here on earth, a good king, King Uzziah, was dead. He had led the nation for 52 good years brought in spiritual reforms, expanded the borders of the country. Now he's gone, and people were saying, Oh no, what are we going to do now? Our throne is empty. Your throne might be empty, but God's throne is still occupied. The last few days, our nation witnessed the death, funeral, and burial of one of its greatest leaders ever, President Ronald Reagan. Some said it's the passing of an era Perhaps it is strong, good, conservative leadership like Ronald Reagan for so long of a time. People look to him. And some, some may be tempted to say, now what? I'm glad George W. is still in the White House, but what if that throne is left unoccupied or somebody else gets in it? Oh, no. Oh, yes, God is still on the throne. God still has his plan. God is resting. God will push and fulfill his agenda. Verse 5, For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect, and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. Notice the metaphor here, and we'll see it a little bit later on, is is that of a vineyard at harvest time. It's a picture of judgment. The harvest sometimes is a picture of the gathering in through evangelism. Jesus said, look at the fields. The uh, harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. But at other times, especially in the prophets, the metaphor, the picture of a harvest is the picture of judgment. Here's the idea. God is this all-wise farmer, husbandman, very much in control, waiting for just the right time to act, to defend, to judge. He's never too early. He's never too late. Also, Isaiah describes in the same verses, verse 6, this feast that God spreads out for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, probably referring to that incident I just mentioned of the corpses of the Assyrian army, 185,000 of them laying out on the fields as God would sort of give the, the beasts and the birds a feast as they would come and feast on their corpses. Now, both of those images, the vineyard and this feast of flesh, is strong imagery that takes us from here on into the future. 
Not just the near, but the far fulfillment. Because it's the same imagery used when Jesus comes back the second time, Revelation chapter 19. In fact, in that chapter, when Jesus returns concerning him, it says, He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So that's the imagery of the vineyard, that judgment. Same chapter, verse 17, Revelation 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and and great. And so what we have here in Isaiah is sort of a snippet, a preview of coming attractions, you might say. When Jesus comes back the second time, the first time he came in humility, the second time he'll come in majesty. The first time Jesus came, he came to save the lost. The second time Jesus comes, he'll come to judge the lost. The first time Jesus came, he came as the sower, sowing the seed of the word of God with his plan to build up his kingdom. But the second time Jesus comes, he'll come as the reaper. And as the Bible says, thrust in the sickle for the time of the harvest has come. Verse 7, it gets better. Thank the Lord. In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord. Of hosts. From a people tall and smooth of skin, and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. What's interesting historically is there is no record at all of this ever happening in the history of um, the Ethiopians coming to Jerusalem. And uh, it is thought then to refer to the kingdom age, way on into the future, the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. In the kingdom age, instead of rushing about and trying to form alliances with people to protect themselves, there will come a time when the Ethiopians will come and worship as we're going to read at the end of chapter 19, all together, all of the Gentile nations, chapter 60 of Isaiah records that remnants from them will come and worship the Lord in Mount Zion. Uh, Question, why would God need a gift? What would you give God anyway as a gift? What kind of a present would we ever bring to God during that time? It's a good question. I'm not going to answer it. But I'm going to suggest something else. There are translations that render this verse a little bit differently. Instead of the nation bringing a gift, one translation puts it this way, In that day shall a present be brought unto Jehovah of a people scattered and ravaged. Or as the King James said, of a people scattered and peeled. In other words, it's not that these people will give a gift to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to the Lord. They will give themselves as a gift. The gift will be the people themselves 
in the millennial kingdom, in the reign of Christ, as a group of people, once ravaged, once scattered, serving the Lord. Who are they? Some think it's the restored nation of Israel. Others see it as the same group mentioned here, uh, the people of tall and smooth skin, the Ethiopians. Now leave this place for a moment, and in your mind, go forward to the book of Acts, where a guy by the name of Philip was enjoying great revival. He was speaking to crowds. People were being healed. He loved it. And then one day, God called him out. He said, Philip, go down to Gaza, which is the desert, down toward the south. He went down there, and he happened to meet an interesting emissary and ambassador of Ethiopia, an Ethiopian eunuch who worked for the governess of the land, Candace. And you know what happened. He sat in the chariot, and the eunuch was reading the book of Isaiah, and right there Philip led him to Christ and then baptized him in some nearby water. I see the Ethiopian eunuch as the first fruits in the New Testament of what would culminate later on through history, the history of the church, as what we see here, this gift of a people presented to Jesus Christ in the kingdom age. What a great thought. Because looking at Acts 8, my mind also goes back to Psalm 2, where the father says to his son, Jesus Christ, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. What a great thought then that the nations will present themselves in service and in worship to the Lord during that age. Let's go into chapter 19 now. This is the sixth burden, and it's against the nation of Egypt. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud, and he will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. The nation of Egypt has a very long history in the Bible. In fact, it's actually the longest of any nation recorded in the pages of Scripture, and it's featured very prominently from the beginning all the way through. Israel began in Egypt. There was Joseph. He was sold from the pit to the Midianite traders. They took him to Egypt and sold him to the Egyptians. He suffered in prison for a while, became prime minister of that country eventually, opened the gateway, the door for the 70 of his father Jacob's family to come down to Egypt, settle in the land of Goshen, populate. 400 years later, you have a people of about 4.5 million leaving Egypt, going through the wilderness and into the promised land. They grew in numbers in the land of Egypt. And even in the uh, history of the Christian church, some, some great movements and great leaders came from Egypt. Origen was one. Tertullian was from Carthage. Athanasius was a bold statesman for the gospel during his time. But here is a judgment against Egypt. And it's the idols in verse 1. The idols of Egypt will totter at God's presence. The heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight his brother and everyone against his neighbor. City against city, kingdom against kingdom. 
Interesting, if you look back in history, at the time of Isaiah's prophecy, during this era, while Isaiah was prophesying this to the people of Judah, over in Egypt, the pharaohs were having a very tough time quelling the crowds, maintaining control over the land. A civil war had broken out. And even the strongest pharaohs couldn't gain control of the people of Egypt, and the armies of Egypt wouldn't submit any longer to the pharaohs. So what happened is that instead of a centralized government controlled by the pharaoh, it broke up into small city-states that warred against each other. And the kingdom actually split very similar to what happened to Judah and Israel. You had northern cities of Egypt fighting the southern city-states of Egypt, even as Isaiah was predicting. The spirit of Egypt, verse 3, will fail in its midst. I will destroy their counsel. And they will consult with the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master. And a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. If you know anything about the history of Egypt, you know that it was idol central, idolatry central. They had probably more idols than anyone else next to Babylon. Everything was a god or a goddess. Everything was worshipped. There was Ra, the sun god. There was Heka, the frog goddess. There was the Nile River itself, known as Hapi, H-A-P-I, we would say, Hapi. Now, they weren't too hoppy later on when God judged them. (laughs) But what God was doing through the plagues even, while Moses was the deliverer of that nation of Israel out of Egypt, was judging the gods, the idols of Egypt. Delivering the children of Israel from a land of idolatry. History tells us that originally... Egypt was monotheistic. Worship one God. And later on, there was the development of second and thirds, and soon an entire pantheon of gods and goddesses because of their animistic superstitions. What happened to Egypt fits perfectly what Paul the Apostle described in Romans chapter 1 when he said, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. That happened in Egypt. And they went from monotheism to polytheism and developed an entire pantheon of false deities which couldn't help them in their time of need and in the time of God's judgment. Now, our verse tells us, verse 4, And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master. Now, who is that exactly? It's hard to say because several cruel masters came along historically. There was Ashurbanipal and Eshar-Hardan. Those were the Assyrian guys. Later on, there was Nebuchadnezzar. He was Babylonian. Later on, the Persians produced Cambyses. He was a cruel master for the Persians. Later on, Alexander the Great ruled and reigned and kept a tight fist on those nations. But probably the cruel master is the Assyrian king, I say probably, Eshar Haddon. 
one who conquered them and put them under subjection. Verse 5, the waters will fail from the sea and the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and the rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away, be no more. This is the Nile River, the lifeblood of the nation. The fishermen also will mourn. All those will lament who cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed and its foundations will be broken. And all who make wages will be troubled of soul. The Egyptians absolutely depended upon the Nile River for its livelihood. All of the industries, all of the agriculture was derived from the Nile. And the Nile was one of the gods that was worshipped. The Nile River at its delta would spring into several canals, tributaries. The water would be diverted for the fields, for the production of crops. And there was an annual flooding of the Nile which brought nutrients into the soil. And if there was a drought, it would absolutely wipe out the national economy of the nation. And God predicts this drought. Agriculture, weaving of flax, fishing, all of those trades and industries, because of God's judgment, would cease. Surely the princes of Zoan, verse 11, that's the city of Ramses, later on called Tanis, if you remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors gave foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts had purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. Interesting, because Egypt was once renowned for its wisdom. In the book of Acts, Stephen is describing the history of Israel and discusses Moses. Moses, he said, was trained in all of the wisdom of Egypt. As if to say, at one point it was known for being wise, this training cultural institute. But the point of this is that even Pharaoh's best counselors can't find a way out of this one. God's judgment has come. By the way, an interesting side note, history also tells us that the pharaohs, eventually the families, the royal families, so intermarried among themselves that they produced a race of morons. Much like the Samaritans who are still in the land of Israel, there's a remnant of them, but their IQ is so severely diminished because they marry only among themselves that this happened to the royal dynasty of Egypt, the pharaohs, the royal line, the family. The Lord, verse 14, has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst. They have caused Egypt to err in all her work. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit, neither will there be any work for Egypt, 
which the head or the tail, palm branch or bulrush, may do. The Lord mentions a perverse spirit, mingled a perverse spirit in her midst. If you look at Egypt today, their legacy, their history, is that they moved from the superstition of idolatry of many gods in their pantheon to the superstition of Islam and are kept under spiritual darkness by that perverse spirit. And yet, there's good news. I mentioned at the beginning that God has a plan for every nation. If they don't fulfill the plan, God will and must judge. And He does that with these nations, including Egypt. But something glorious is going to happen in the future. In verse 16, In that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which He waves over it, implying, when it speaks of Egypt as women, a softness and timidity, uh, rather than being like a fierce warrior. That's the idea. I'm not going to touch that. I'm only going to say that and move on. (laughs) And the, the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which He has determined against it. Now we're going on into the future. Once Judah had turned even to Egypt for help during difficult times, but in the future, even Judah will be a terror to the superpower of Egypt. Judah will be the dominant power in times to come, in the kingdom age. In that day, five cities, verse 18, in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan, that is Hebrew, and swear by the Lord of hosts, one will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. The historian Josephus says that this was already fulfilled. I disagree. He says it was 1 B.C., and there was a high priest from Jerusalem who went all the way down to Egypt. His name was Onias. And Onias got permission from Egypt to build a monument unto the God of Israel. It was allowed. But this is an ensign, this is a banner, this is a monument that speaks of the national policy of Egypt one day will be to worship the God of Israel. What a wonderful thing to think about. A nation that has lived under the crescent moon of Islam will now live under the cross of Jesus Christ. What a plan God has for that nation. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord. And He will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land 
whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Egypt has had a glorious past. Egypt will have a better future. In the kingdom age, worshiping in Mount Zion at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. What unites these three superpowers in the end? It's not a political alliance. It's the Savior mentioned, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring them together. Jesus is the Savior of the world. The Messiah of Israel, yes, but the Savior of the world. You remember when the angel stood before those shepherds or hovered above them in the fields of Bethlehem and told them the good news? He says, don't be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. It was always God's plan to extend His kingdom to all the world, all the nations of the earth. Our task is to preach the gospel to every living creature. Egyptian, American, Israeli, Palestinian, anyone who will hear that they might live under the cross of Christ, even as these will in the millennial kingdom. Heavenly Father, we have seen this overarching theme of how you will put down the proud and exalt the humble. We see that theme repeated throughout your word. And so we are told to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that you would exalt us in due time. So, Lord, we come before you tonight in worship, in submission, and anticipating the time when Jesus Christ will reign from Mount Zion and we will be gathered there, going there once a year, gathering with others from other nations. So different in our earthly life, but what draws us together is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, who can save a person from all sin. And so, Lord, thank you Thank you for showing us the truth of your word that we might anticipate an incredible future yet ahead. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand. As I was studying these chapters this week, I thought, oh my. Poor Skip. (laughs) We brought him into a very difficult area as uh, the burdens of the Lord against these various lands and um, quite an initiation. Uh, But uh, I feel that he did a masterful job in the exposition.
The pastors are down here at the front once again to pray for you and any of you that have a need. The Lord wants to meet that need for you. And so I would encourage you as soon as we're dismissed, come down and seek the Lord. Allow the Lord the privilege of working in your life as he longs to do, to show you his love, to show you his power. And so these men are here to pray with you and to minister to you this evening. Feel free to come down and avail yourself of this opportunity of seeking the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in thee, Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord.